to me, the most terrifying, death-defying act I can possibly imagine isn't bungee jumping or free solo climbing. It's stand-up comedy. It's improv. Today, my guest is someone who teaches stand-up comedy and improv to everyday people like you and me. And you're about to meet him. His name is Corey Rosen, and he's actually one of those multi-hyphenate kind of guys. Yes, he teaches stand-up comedy and improv and storytelling, but he also has hosted 105 live events for The Moth, including the Moth Story Slams and Grand Slams since winning the first ever Bay Area Moth Story Slam in 2014. Corey's an award-winning writer, actor, and has been featured on The Moth Radio Hour, Backfence PDX, The Finch Files, and B-Sider Podcasts, and is an on-air personality for Alice Radio's The Sarah and Vinny Show. And if you're a Bay Area person, you've heard of that one because it's our number one commercial morning show in the Bay Area. You can see Corey perform at Bats Improv, which is one of the world's most, which is one of the world's foremost centers for improvisational theater. And he's written for Comedy Central, Jim Henson Productions, and Lucasfilm. He also is creative director at Tippett Studio, a two-time Oscar-winning media production company writing screenplays for seven theme park attractions around the world. But here's a bonus tidbit. While at Tippett Studio talking to Corey, I got to hold one of Phil Tippett's Oscars in my hands. My hands held his Oscar for his work on Jurassic Park. I know. I, I Listen, I don't know what to tell you, but here's what I can say. I can say that holding an Oscar, you really, you need somebody with you to take a few photos because selfies are not possible. You really, you need both hands because <laughs> it's heavy. So thank you, Corey, for holding, holding the phone and taking my picture. And you need to stay present in your body when you hold an Oscar because you will be tempted to revert to your nine-year-old self who used to practice her Oscar acceptance speech in the mirror. That That's just me. Maybe, maybe it's just me. Anyway, I wanted to ask Corey what we can learn from stand-up and improv because there are communication and storytelling gems to be mined from those two disciplines. And I wanted to bring those gems to you, my crazy diamonds. And you guys, Corey does not disappoint. So I'll stop talking and let's dive in. Enjoy. So Corey, the way I found out about you was mm-hmm. my dear, beloved Jen Reedy. If you're listening, Jen, I love you so much. And her husband participated in a night of stand-up. This is something they wanted a school auction. And you somehow whipped up this team of Marin people. <laughs> Marin people to get up on stage. The least likely. The least. To I mean, do listen, Marin funny, people are. I, I mean, Jen and Dan Reedy are hilarious, but, yeah. you know, I wouldn't categorize them as the people dying to get up and do a stand up routine. Yeah. So, what I want to ask you is. How the hell did you do that? How did you turn <laughs> my friend Jen into a really tight two-minute comedy act? Funny. How did this happen? That's a great question. First, maybe I'll contextualize what this thing was that you're describing so that anyone who wasn't there, which is probably most people listening to this, would know what we're talking about. Excellent. And also, I have a follow-up question for you before I say how I did it. Yeah. But what it was, was a school fundraiser for a school in Marin County wanted to have a performance and to do kind of like a parent night, like get together. A lot of schools do things like 
sort of a buy-in party, sort of an opt-in. What do they call those? Yeah, I know what you're talking I'm about. Talking I have about, no idea what they're called, but I yeah, know what you mean. But people basically kind of like part of your auction contribution to the school is that you're opting in to go to a game night or a fondue party or karaoke <laughs> or bingo. I don't know, like whatever it yeah, is. Yeah. So my good friend John Wank goes to this school and he had a vision that what would happen would be one of those kind of parties would happen within his community only the acts would be parents from the community and the material would be stand-up comedy. And the problem is that none of these people, zero of the contenders, had ever done stand-up before. <laughs> and the timeline was tight. It was like, we have like three nights to practice of like two to three hours per night and then we want to do a show for 400 people. Oh my God. <laughs> so that's the thing and with that in mind, now before I sort of say how I did that, you were at the show? No, I was not at the oh, show. Okay. I got sent a clip from Jen yeah. saying, this clip will self-destruct in 40 seconds after you <laughs> watch it. Never show anybody again. But it was really freaking good, Corey. And yeah. I, in my job... I'm obsessed with getting people to a point where they shine, sure. no matter what, no matter how high the stakes are, no matter how crazy it is. Yeah. And so when I saw what you did, mm -hmm. I mean, Jen's amazing, but to me, stand-up comedy is like the most gonzo art form yeah. I can think of. Yeah. How did you get a yeah. normal average person? Great. I mean, above average, Jen, you're fabulous. But how did you do that? She yeah. was amazing. So yeah, we're going to tell the story in a funny order. So I sort of did the pitch of like okay. what it was supposed to be. Let's jump to the outcome. It was hilarious. 15 individuals got on stage in front of their peers who had never done this before and crushed. I would say without exception, every single one of these acts got on that stage and it was the kind of show where you dream as a performer to have a show like this. We're in a beautiful space in Larkspur, California where it was like all wooden beams and like sort of an A-frame roof and everybody's lined up in folding chairs and when they laughed, you could feel the laughter. It was oh like this God. wave hitting you. And it was this thing, I read this quote by Gilda Radner recently oh, about like when you feel an audience respond and you know you're responsible for that, there's no greater feeling. Oh and God. I watched each of these people do that, get up there and put their anxieties to the side do their material and feel that impact, that, that uh, feedback, that loop. feedback, and then leave on this high. Unbelievable. So that's where it ended up. So yeah. now your question, how the hell did we get there? Yes. Yeah. And that, I'll admit, it just surprises everybody. <laughs> Because I mean, if somebody had yeah. given me that assignment, I would have been like, I'm going to have to respectfully decline this opportunity yeah. because I wouldn't even know where to begin. Yeah. To one degree, it was kind of a perfect storm of things like the people were game. Mm -hmm. I was open to seeing where this would go. And in the end, the people also worked really hard. Mm. So what does that mean? A lot of the work that I do is working with people of all different kinds of backgrounds, all different ages, from kids to grownups, focusing on storytelling and story development. Mm. So I teach storytelling classes. I host the Moth, the local Moth Story Slam shows in the Bay Area. Amazing. So I listen to a lot of stories. I tell a lot of stories. And a lot of the workshops that I lead are storytelling focused. Mm -hmm. And that can really range from people wanting to tell a story at a storytelling show, like get up on a stage and tell a true story to strangers. 
that could be CEOs who want to do their brand story in a better mm -hmm. way and to not just list off features or qualities or marketing speak, yep. but contextualize it in a way that draws somebody in and has them curious and mm -hmm. wondering and actually engage them in a personal way, like in an emotional way or something like that, mm -hmm. to people who just want to do something really specific, like somebody who was trying to make a bridesmaid toast at her sister's wedding and was terrified of it, knew she was going to stink it up. And she ended up practicing in a class her bridesmaid toast as a story, not just like a list of, oh my God, that was so, so amazing. Yes, yeah, so oh we have God. done so many great things. <laughs> like that one time, I mean, I can't even describe it because it was just so great. That was amazing. Oh my God. And then there was that other time, but I mean, that would be embarrassing. And now I'm going to waste 10 minutes of everybody else's time oh, not makes, telling what happened. Doesn't make you crazy? It drives me it, nuts. I'm scaling the ceiling when yep. that happens. So we did with her and with other people is like, well, let's just tell an actual, just one story. And in some way that story can stand in for who she is, what your relationship is and stuff like that. Sometimes one story can do that work. That's right. So when, so when John oh, ahead, yeah. was like, hey, can you do this stand-up thing? My first inclination was fear because I've never taught stand-up in that way. I've actually only done stand-up a handful of times myself. So like, who am I to teach a class in this other than someone who is willing <laughs> to face my own fears? And Which is kind of huge. Yeah, to say, sure, I can do that. Because what another friend of mine, William Hall, once taught me is that the best way to learn something is to teach a class in it. Wow. Not necessarily take a class in it, but teach a class. Because yeah. what happens if you have to teach a class in you it? You have to learn that material yeah. inside out. Yeah. yeah. So I spent weeks reading, learning, watching, and preparing myself for what that would be. In other words, I had to educate myself, and then I applied what I use in my storytelling, which is effectively this combination of there's information and there's strategy and there's tools, but then there's also improvisation. Mm. Because mm. that's my other part of my background is that I'm an improviser, I perform improv, I teach improv workshops and things like that. And so what improv and the sort of improvisational mindset does is it allows you the freedom to be free, to suck a little bit, to develop, to accept that it's not going to be perfect the first time, to not let your adequacy or maybe inadequacy be a deterrent to even starting. Yeah. I think once you're used to or you're up for trying and knowing that maybe a lot of this is going to suck, the sooner you can get past the suck to the okay and then working with a group of people, which is what we did in the stand-up classes, that we created kind of a writer's room, like a little block of people that could not only develop material but then workshop that material with each other in a couple of sessions to say what's the best of what you've got and let's make that better and not even say I didn't like that and I hate that just don't even pay attention to that stuff just focus on what's exciting what's good yeah. what's working mm -hmm. how can we make it better yeah so I have a question for you I feel like something that I observe in working with adults and actually working with kids but 
one of the biggest hurdles, I think, to being truly magical on stage as a storyteller, as a performer, as anything, is self-consciousness. Mm-hmm. People are so afraid of how they look in the eyes of someone else yeah. that what they end up doing is they dull everything down so much mm-hmm. that they make themselves forgettable. Yep. And so part of what I look for as a coach is ways to, and no two people are the same, different people need different things to confront and overcome the self-consciousness, but I'm curious like what do you do to get someone that you can tell is like paralyzed by fear and self-consciousness how do you get them past that first breathe Mm. just getting that person to be okay with being themselves right now because i've performed for years and years and there have been times where i've been backstage and it's that thing of I don't want to go out there. I got nothing. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. Even me. I've done this a lot, right? And it's one of those things like put one foot in front of the other and breathe and do the counterintuitive thing, which is slow down instead of like, I'm going to speed up and get this over with is the first step. Breathe, slow down. Yeah. And take one step. It's the one step. Confucian <laughs> quote, you know. And people don't believe that, you know, when offer advice like that, they're yeah. like, but what if I don't know what the next step is? You always know yeah. the next step. Yeah. You find. You find the next step. So starting with that, I think the second thing is a level of accepting yourself and knowing that no matter how prepared I am, remember when you were in school and you'd study and study and study for a test. And somebody once told me, they were like, and if you sleep with the book under your pillow, then it absorbs. I actually tried that once or twice. I mean, I knew that that wasn't going to work, but it's one of those like. It just felt better. It felt better. And somehow (laughs) I can't study anymore. I'm tired. Anyway, so you study as much as you can, and then you have to walk in the test and take the test. I think that's what performing or speaking to some degree is, which is you can prepare as much as you can. And when you walk in to do the presentation or the performance or whatever that is, there's a part of you that needs to throw it away. That's it. Is to get rid of the speech because if you nail it, if you read it every word, word for word, just the way it is, the text might be perfect, but the heart is missing. Is missing. Yeah. And I would rather watch you screw up, lose your place, forget something, and get me on your side because I relate to that. Yeah. Than if you hit every single word perfectly and I don't believe a word of it because I feel like you've written and practiced this monologue. It's robotic. It's yeah. robotic. My daughters were in a rock band performance mm-hmm. last weekend. Cool. I was enormously proud. Very cool. They're 13 and 11, and they were singing like Judas Priest and Van Halen and Metallica. And my big heart was like, exploding all over the place and right before they went on stage you know the band is like setting up and they're all teenagers they don't want to hear from me but I'm like I'm gonna give you some advice anyway and I said you know people don't want a perfect show they want a fun show yeah they want to rock out. Definitely. So if you screw up, you screw up. And then my band was playing the next day, and I didn't deliver a perfect show. Yeah. But I had a real good time. That's what you want. And the people in the audience, I think, did too. And I think when people are hearing this, they may not believe us. Because when you're the self-conscious one, you're trying to remember everything. Yeah. Do you have any rituals, like pre-game rituals for, you know, you're hosting the moth, let's say, mm-hmm. or you're about to send a bunch of Marin moms and dads on stage. Is there anything other than breath that you think is great for just that moment of surrender where you're like, you know what? I have to jump off the edge of the building now. A lot of things. Anytime that I perform anywhere, so this is at The Moth, this is at Bats Improv, which is my home improv theater company, and any group of actors specifically do these things, which is like 
you've probably seen, even if you're not an actor, actors warming up, stretching their mouths, moving their bodies, warming up backstage, the muscles of how you talk, whether that's vocal warm-ups or just physical, just do like, I'm doing it right now, like... Sort of yeah, you, you look like you're doing a pose a or something. Bird. Yeah, like a Daniel song when he's just about to knock the guy out with his foot. Yeah, yeah. So you yeah. kind of like push your shoulder blades back and then do this bear one, which is kind of like, <sighs> and then barrel like you're like you're bending over, over a, a beach barrel. ball. Just stretch out a little bit. If you're performing with other people, it's really important to connect with them, like one to one. Look at them in the eye. If you know any games, you know that's a good time to like play a word at a time story or something. Just do something where you're not thinking about the thing that you're going to say on the stage. But you're just connecting it. But you're just connecting and you're kind of becoming present in now. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean that in a cheesy way. I just mean no matter what preparation you've got and the speech that you have to deliver and all the preparation you did for what's going to be on that page, when you're doing something live and you're performing, you got to read the room. That's you got to say, what are they feeling right now? What's happening in the world? Mm-hmm. Is there a big basketball game that everybody's checking their scores on? Like, what else is happening so that I'm one of them? I'm not the distraction or the thing that's keeping them away from the thing they're really interested in. That's it. How can I join together and be part of that? And I'm one of them. That's right. And this is why I think improv is having such a big moment in business because every company I talk to mm-hmm. either is planning on hiring somebody to teach improv or they yeah. already have. Totally. And I think part of why this is so catching on is that business has separated brain from emotion for mm-hmm. so long when it comes to presentations and things like that. And they're finally realizing this is all an energy game. Mm-hmm. Like when I get brought in and there's two people on a stage together, they have to hang out. Yeah. They have to bond and have a cord of connection between them before they go out on stage because the audience feels it. Yep. If you don't know your partner and you're on a panel and you guys have never met and you've never talked before, the audience is going to feel how flat and awkward that is, mm-hmm. right? So I think that's huge. But back to your like, you're stretching your body, you're da-da-da-da, you're moving your muscles, you're doing all this stuff. Yeah. Again, these are things that we're not supposed to do in polite company. I'm not yeah. supposed to like so, growl yeah, yeah. and do all these things. Yeah. So do you just tell people, look, boo, you're the one owning the room. Who cares what polite company is? Go for it. Yeah. Just stretch it out. I mean, if you're going on stage, everybody knows that. Maybe you find a little spot out, outside or in the bathroom or something and just be comfortable, mm-hmm. breathe, that kind of thing. Secondly, walk around. I'd say go in the space infiltrate where you're going to be like if you're presenting at a huge conference don't just hang out backstage in the green room walk around the space maybe just meet a stranger hi where are you from what are you doing get a little sense of who's there and where people are coming from Mm -hmm. and who knows it might find its way into something that you say or maybe you'll make eye contact with that person while you're talking and it's not like you're feeling you're speaking to a room full of strangers you're speaking to a friend someone that you just met yeah these are little things that i like to do especially if it's to complete strangers is meet a few of them and now i feel like i know a few people Mm -hmm. you know and i'm just talking and these aren't faceless strangers i've got a few peeps something else i like to have people do especially for big audience things is i love to get people up on that stage before it's go time so Mm -hmm. that they can imprint Mm -hmm. right where you look at this and you're like this is my house 
when I'm on this stage, this is my house, and yeah. my house is a good time. Yep. And people are safe in my house, and we're gonna party, and this is how it's gonna like I, whatever the intention is for the talk. I like getting them up on stage and just feeling that yeah. vibe. Do you kind of do that with space, like actually looking at the space and visualizing the kind of scene you like, the mayhem you want to have happen? Yes. And when I teach, I also like to contextualize what somebody is doing into these kind of blocks. So the the first block might be, you know, the ideation or coming up with what is it that I'm going to talk about and the sort of development of that concept. Mm -hmm. The second block being structuring what I'm going to say and how I'm going to say it, whether that's a PowerPoint presentation or a story or a best man speech or whatever. And the third part is the performance that if you are presenting, it's not just the material, but being aware of the fact that I am being looked at they're looking at my body language, they're looking at my presence, if I'm wandering, if I'm just pacing, if I'm planting myself, if I'm talking to a microphone, how far away from the mic am I? What's it gonna sound like? Am I way too far away from the mic and it's gonna sound like this, <laughs> which is gonna sound terrible on the podcast, but that's the point, is that yeah. where you are matters. Yeah. And so I think working with that understanding, like mm-hmm. you're talking about owning the space, is such an important part of that is that you've got your message and you've got your content, how you present it is just as important. Absolutely. But I have noticed that to me, that's like the last mile thing. Mm -hmm. I think so much of the magic happens at the ideation stage and the really thinking early on about the contents shaping. Sometimes people bring me in at the, does this ever happen to you? You get brought at the very end Mm -hmm. and the content is just lifeless and Mm -hmm. terrible. And you're like, I can make you sound great on a microphone and you can move your hands just right. It still is going to be a tough hang for the audience, which is the worst feeling. It can be. it can be. If I can get a little sense of, for a situation like that, that's a challenge, right? Yeah. You're, we brought it at the end. I've got my speech, but it's not funny. Make it funny or make me a good presenter. <laughs> make me speaker, funny, Corey, immediately. Like that. The first thing I would say is just try to not read it. You know it. Just say it once as you. Maybe knowing that you're going to read it when you actually do it, but getting them to now lose the off crutch, book. go off yep. book. Yeah what you're gonna find and what you're gonna hear in that version is gonna be a little more authentic and a little more real. Interesting, yeah. And it's also gonna represent what's the stickiest and most memorable part of what they're saying. That's it. Not all the facts and the details that we're all gonna forget anyway, but like what's the meaning? Yeah. What's the message? What's the heart? What about going back to the storytelling thing for a second? When you are helping someone with that skill, because Mm -hmm. I know people like you and I get brought in for a specific moment, a presentation, an experience that's trying Mm -hmm. to be created. Is there a formula you give people? Like people listening that are like, I love the idea of storytelling, but it's like, where do I begin? What's step A? Like, do you have a formula that you teach people? And if you do, are you comfortable telling us? (laughs) I do. Well, I do and I don't. Mm -hmm. I don't think that there's a formula you should use and have it always follow that formula. But I have a tool that I rely on a lot to figure out what the arc of my story is, which is something that everybody should know about. And it's the Ken Adams story spine. Mm. And if you don't know it, please Google it. Or maybe it's linked through the podcast. You can put put a link to it. Ken Adams is a teacher and a playwright and a barrier improviser, and he developed a story spine that has a list of about seven or eight kind of initial sentences, once upon a time and every day until one day, and because of that, and because of that, and because of that, until finally, and ever since that day, (laughs) 
and the moral of the story, right? So you basically have like this spine, right? Right, right. And so if you've got something and you're like, I don't know if it's a story, you know, I have this thing that happened. How do I make it into a story or how do I find the story is I look at it in the spine. Okay, well, mm. what was once upon a time? Like, what was life like? What was normal? Like, what is this story essentially about? Mm-hmm. And every day, like, what was the normal nature of life? until one day what happened? You know, what was the thing that tilted this in a different direction and then cause and effect? Because of that, something happened and because of that, something else happened or maybe I felt something Mm -hmm. or did something or took some action that was unusual because of this thing. And you get to until finally, you made some concluding thing and then ever since that day, how are things different? Yeah, yeah. And that's the difference between a story and just like a thing that happened. Right. And it's the way that anything anything can kind of be then contextualized in a story. It could be you going down to the corner store to buy some ice cream for your daughter, and that could be made into a story because maybe you went down there, but you had some interaction with someone, and that interaction reminded you of something else that took you to another time or another place, or you being your daughter, and maybe by the time you get the ice cream and you bring it home, the action of the story is really simple. It's just like I went and had a mm-hmm. transaction. Mm-hmm. But the story is that I connected with my daughter in a way that took me back to a relationship I had with my mother mm-hmm. or something that can make me as a human relate to a life experience, even if what happens isn't that profound. Yeah, yeah. The thing that we do all the time is that we remember. That's right. And we connect. And the remembering creates the action yeah. in and of itself. Something I always tell my clients is great storytellers are great story collectors. Once you start getting used to a story spine, once yeah. you start getting used to a problem solution narrative or whatever it is, you start getting more adept at capturing them. Mm-hmm. And so I always have clients like write them down in a Google Doc or do, you know, especially if you're like at a software company and you've, yeah. you've got to, you're in charge of storytelling because you're in sales. Totally. Like you've got to have a place to record that stuff. Do you ever think about ways for people to start gathering as they go? Like mm-hmm. my friend Ben Kiker will like read a news article and be like, oh my God, sharks have been around 2,000 years longer than humans I'm gonna use that <laughs> I don't know where yeah but I'm gonna use that, like that. and he stores it like do you ever I like people? I like that I think amazing natural facts are amazing things to collect there's a podcast I recently got turned on to called I think it's called story worthy by Matthew Dix mm. and he has this thing that he uses called homework for life Oh, that's good. Which is kind of like you were just describing. He basically keeps a Google Doc or an Excel spreadsheet or something, and it's every day. It's microblogging, basically. Like, what's one thing that happened today that could be a story? Maybe not today, but, <gasps> oh like, God, I might I write this that. thing into a story later. I love that. And you don't write the story. You just say, like, today my son had a really hard day, and we started playing Risk, and from that moment, I watched him turn around. I don't know what the story is gonna be in that, but that's something that happened to me yesterday where my son was really grouchy, and we started playing this game that we, we had played once before, years before, and all of a sudden, he was engaged and we were connected. I might develop that later, I right. don't know how. I love but, that. But it homework for life. Homework for life. Yeah. That is so, God, it's like every single neuron in my head is firing because I think part of what is true about the way we live now is everything. Do you have kids, Corey? I can't I do, remember. Yeah, I yeah everything kids. feels like it's happening so fast mm-hmm. and so everything is so densely packed yep. that I fall. Do you ever feel like you just fall into bed and you're mm-hmm. like, I just need to pull the hard drive out? Yep. And just start over. Yeah. And don't you feel sometimes like you're missing some of the stories that happen day in, sure, day out? Sure, sure. 
And yeah, and you don't see them growing up. No. You know, like it's all happening so gradually, so yes. slow, but then all of a sudden you see Aunt Judy and she's like, how did you get so tall? And yes. you're like, when did you get so tall? So well, this is a way exactly of, right. this is a technique Slowing of doing that, down. is not putting the pressure on yourself to keep a detailed journal of your yes. child's life, but if right. you have this collection of memories Moments. that might lead to something else. Yeah. Do you find that in your line of work, because you're an artist in a bunch of different directions, mm-hmm. do you find that you are more careful about your social media and compulsive technology usage? Because you have to be more awake and alert and watching to make art. You mm. have to be in observation mode. Yeah. And I look at people like you and I think you must be more awake in a 24-hour period <laughs> than some of us. Because, you know, sometimes we numb out with scrolling. Yeah. But when I think about people like you that are one foot in improv, one foot in animation, yeah. one foot in storytelling, you have to watch with glittering eyes, right? Mm-hmm. Like Roald Dahl says. Do yeah. you find that to be true about yourself? You mean the way that I text or the way no, I mean the way like that I during the day when you take a break yeah are you going on Instagram or are you taking a walk are you thinking about something meaningful that happened and writing mm. it down for use later like are you more mindful than the rest of us Corey <laughs> I'm trying to put you on a pedestal I am, perhaps I, no, I should not I am no heightened enlightened individual <laughs> but I do try to limit my time on it not like that I do it not at all because it's also a way it's the digital version of walking around the room before the That's conference. I need true. to know what's happening and I want to know what's happening in people's lives. But when I get to the point where just like I'm just scrolling like I'm deep into somebody's rando <laughs> experience doing something that I don't care about. Like who even is that person? Like, what, how, are my how did friends? I get here? Yeah. And then when you see something you've already seen and you're like, when I'm seeing that again, I've been on here too long. Yeah. Like Facebook is recycling content for me and there shouldn't be a lack of new content on that if people are pouring themselves into it. But anyway, yeah, I digress. I think that the easiest thing to do is to not do, right? The yeah. easiest thing to do is to not create. The easiest thing to do is to find some excuse to not make something. That's right. When I was growing up, I remember college, I'd have a big assignment, big paper. First thing I would do, clean every inch of my dorm room or my apartment, like anything but the thing I had to do because somehow psychologically I thought I was purified. You know, I was just procrastinating. 100%. Doing the thing. And it's why people need offices and not just work from home because sometimes you need to get away from folding the laundry and Mm -hmm. changing the dryer. You need a place to just be you. So... I'm totally veering off here, but one of the most creative places I ever found myself was I was doing like a soul-searching solo journey through Southeast Asia in my 20s when people do things like that, and I was on the back of a motorcycle going through the central highlands of Vietnam, Wow! and I'm on the back of the motorcycle, not driving a motorcycle, I don't drive a motorcycle. You're clinging to the back. But I'm on the back of this motorcycle, and so I have nowhere to go and nothing but my thoughts in my brain. And every so often I would like tap in my driver and make him pull over so I could write down all the things that were going on in my head. Because you were being flooded with Ah, ideas? Yes. So like staring out the window of a bus or a train or a motorcycle or whatever is an amazingly creative place to be. But it's uncomfortable at first. In fact, I'm going on this trip I was just telling you about and I am not checking email, Facebook, Instagram, nothing for 10 days. And part of me is 
panic stricken because what the hell am I going to do when I have that urge? But the other part of me look is like, look out the window. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to be downloading or thinking. Look at or, the world. Right. Look at the world. Have you ever gone on, I don't know if you take public transportation. But, I used to. I live in San Jose now. We, okay. We really don't. But if you go on BART's Caltrains, it makes me sad to see everyone on their phones. I'm the guy who sits there and I just look around at the life and look at the people there more often than not. One, because I got my phone stolen on a bus. No way. Yeah, this is like 10 years ago, but I had this brand new iPhone 3S that I loved and I got it the day before. And I remember because the headphone jack and my previous iPhone didn't work anymore, so I couldn't listen to it. And I remember sitting on the bus and I've got my headphones in and I could just hear the music and I'm just looking at my new iPhone when we got to a stop and I felt a hand come on top of my hand and pull it out of my hand and run off the bus. And I chased them. I ran after the person who stole my phone because about four days earlier, my brother who lived in LA at the time had a similar thing happen to him. A kid asked if he could call his mom. And so my brother gave his headphones to this kid. My brother called the number and then the kid reached over and took the phone. He watched his eyes just go like, (gasps) sort of like hollow thing. And then he turned and ran. Just ran. And he tried to- What a trip that that happened right. Yeah. But in that situation, a woman pulled up in a car. She saw the whole thing go down. My brother got in the car. They called 911 on the woman's phone and they got the kid. You're kidding. And got his phone back. So this is going through my head now as I'm chasing You're like, this well, guy. You're like, well, I need you the same thing. And mine did not have that outcome. Oh, no. Did, <laughs> my, you, did he, he outran me? You? And I realized there's no woman pulling up in a car to yeah. pull and save me. It's going to end up with me getting my ass kicked. So, so because of that, you don't do anything phone-wise? So now? what I started doing is just not having my phone out on the bus. So it, it was started by a practical thing. But all the way back to what we started with. Yeah. I notice people, I get ideas for stories. I mean, I try not to stare, but like, yeah, it's creative thinking time for me when I'm on a bus or on a But does that street. ever make you worry? Like, because some of my best, I just remember being in my 20s before mm-hmm. I had kids, before I was married, doing this, the prancing around yeah. adventures. Mm-hmm. And I was alone with my thoughts and so much of my destiny and my arc of my life, those seeds were planted in yep. those moments on the buses, yep. nursing a heartache or figuring out my next move. And I feel sad that the youths, <laughs> does that ever make you pause? Like, are you seeing a degradation in the quality of storytelling from younger people coming mm. up because they're less observant? I'm so curious. That's a really good question. I see where you're going with this, and I like your train of thought. Is this an improv way of not saying the word but? I disagree, but I'm not going to say it. <laughs> no, because I'm of two minds about it. Okay. So every stop sign, every traffic light I'm at, and somebody crosses in front of me, they're not looking at the world around them. They're looking to feed in front of them, and they're reading something. And that's amazing. Like, we can be connected all the time, but they're not seeing the world around them, whether they're actually in danger yeah. or whether, like, something's happening. And it makes and me a little sad. And we've all been that guy before. Yeah. Like, I've done the same thing, yeah. embarrassingly. But it makes me a little sad of, like, just get off your phone. You know, mm-hmm. like, read it later. Like, mm-hmm. we don't constantly need to be checking. We're a little connected. But on the storytelling side, I have found, at least the people that I talk to that have stories to tell, often don't know that they have a story until they start to tell it and discovering what that is. Like I'm one of those people who believes everybody has stories. Sometimes you need to learn how to 
tell it in a way that connects with another person. So I don't feel like people have less stories or not interesting stories because they're not looking at the world around them. Maybe they're not being as observant about the situation. But life happens. But we can, life happens. Yeah, and it makes you stories happen. It. Yeah. So I remember reading this book a long time ago called Old School, not the movie Old School, <laughs> but I, God, who wrote it? I'll think about it and I'll put it in the show notes. But I remember this kid is from a kind of a rough part of town and he goes to this very expensive prep school and he's a writer and he's sitting on gold. Mm-hmm. His personal story is so good mm-hmm. and so like rot, but he's so ashamed of it that he never pulls it out and it's just sitting there. And as the reader, you can see he's sitting on this gold mine, but he's so riddled with shame and embarrassment and he doesn't want to expose himself. And to me, I love that story so much because it's all of us, right? We're all walking around with these gems. So when you work with people who aren't sure they have a story, how do you prompt it out of them? How do you get them to move past shame or hesitation or, you know what I mean? I use a couple things. First, I think people are generally insecure to some degree about their, is this interesting factor? We all want to be interesting and people want to, like, if you ask, do you have any stories? They'll maybe tell you the chestnut that they always tell, that one that they always tell. Totally. Yeah. And that's fine to have that story. I think that when you read a book or take a class or do some improv or something that's going to open up the fact that you are a collection of stories. You have lots of stories. Something that just happened on their way here today could be a story. And when you develop that as like a muscle and see what and how you can tell anything as a story, you can find a different way of interacting with the world around you and the people in your life. Mm. So I think that there is a line of like, we're not all wanting to talk about somebody who died in our lives or something that was a traumatic or difficult experience. So it's not not always the time to talk about that. But I think that as a creative person saying, I don't want to talk about that because it's not good is not the best thing. Mm -hmm. I would rather encourage that person to do the bad version of it. You know, like do a version of it because the sooner you get that version out, the sooner it can start getting better. That's it. So whatever you're doing, if you're trying to do a thing, whatever it is, your own podcast, your own book, your own magazine, your own whatever, just do a version of it. it Do prototype it, create something. And as soon as you make a thing, you could say, oh, I did that. I'm, I got it out of my Move system. To the next one. Or I could do another one. And the more things you can do, the better you'll feel about having done those things versus building that list of one days. Yeah, yeah. And even if it's not exactly the way you imagined it, I've created things that weren't really done to the level that I brilliantly imagined the Oscar <laughs> winning version of that. But I look at what did get done. I'm like, hmm, sorry. You know? Yeah. And using the resources that I had at the time, that... I stand by that. I stand by that, and now I can do something else. One of the most freeing things I ever heard was Ira Glass talking about creativity and art. And I can't remember if this was part of an episode or if it was just him riffing on some interview, but he Mm -hmm. was like, I think he was talking about writing specifically, but he's like, you have to write pretty badly Mm -hmm. for a really long time before the switch flips. And I remember that felt so good to hear Mm -hmm. because I knew 
as a writer, as a communicator, it was pretty average for a very long time. Uh-huh. But for somebody to give you permission to be mediocre for a while until you're not, yeah. to me, that is like the greatest gift. And so when you're working with people in improv or in storytelling or whatever, is that part of your process? Like, look, this yeah. doesn't have to be the greatest thing in the world. 100%. Okay. So if you're doing improv for a performance or you're doing improv to blow off some steam and bond with your friends and your team, one of the first misconceptions is that you got to be funny and witty and that's completely not true. It's not true. The way that humor and wit and all those things come from is presence and spontaneity. <gasps> it's just react to what's actually happening yes. and be here now and respond to what someone just did. Your first reaction to what they just did is usually the funniest one. Okay, wait, I just want to pause on that because that is so key because yeah. I think we all think that brilliant improv comes from a layer of cleverness that's three clicks above the moment. Mm-hmm. It's the opposite. It's, it's the, the opposite. opposite. It's if you, dialing if you, into yeah, the moment. If somebody says something and I sit there and I wait and think of what's the funniest response, <laughs> every moment that passes, every microsecond that passes, the audience has now had a thought of what they think that I should say or what I should have said or what they would say, and they're waiting, and I better be hilarious because all this time has passed for everybody else's little computer brains to have punched that setup or whatever, like answered that thing. And so if I say something immediately after somebody has said that, Mm -hmm. very often if they laugh, they're laughing because like, I was thinking the same Same thing, thing, right? It's the obvious thing. Right. So be obvious, be average, be fine, and be now. And you'll very often find that you're connecting with people. They're relating to you versus trying to show them up or trying to show that you're smarter or impress them. Yeah. Because if you do, they're just going to hate you a little bit. (laughs) Just microaggression (laughs) all over. So I'd say just be real and be present. So improv workshops for like teams of people. Yeah are usually about that of like, let's just be silly. Like, let's just be ourselves. Let's mm-hmm. not try to be our buttoned up office persona mm-hmm. and not to be inappropriate, yeah. but it's like, let's respect each other, yeah. but let's be playful with each other and find common ground, yeah. have a good time, be real and laugh together. And if you can laugh with someone, then you can actually get over some of the maybe repressed anxieties or self-consciousness. I was even going to say like frustrations you might have like at the office, like that person doesn't really get me. But if you play with them a little bit in a way that you can make each other laugh, Mm -hmm. then something that comes up in two weeks in the office, it's a little tense. Maybe you'll relate to each other a little better Mm -hmm. and and find a way through it that's Mm -hmm. more collaborative than somebody winning, somebody losing. Yeah. In fact, sometimes I hear critiques of bringing improv into the business world, into corporate America, and it's like, oh, that's so woo-woo. It's kind of out there. We don't see the connection point with what we do. And I think you've just articulated the value of it. You're not trying to turn a blue-chip stock company X into Saturday Night Live. No. (laughs) But what you're trying to do is... Is get them to work better as a team. So if the blue-chip stock company can collaborate and listen to each other they're going to work more effectively more efficiently and be happier in their workplace so that they're going to want to stay they're not going to be looking for jobs on their lunch breaks or something and they're going to um, like what they're doing Mm -hmm. so I think that's one of the other values of it is that if you enjoy what you're doing and you feel listened to and you feel that you can be collaborative even if not creative but it's like am I being listened to or am I just a cog in this machine Yeah. yeah that I'm doing whatever the 
person above me is telling me to do, then I'm replaceable. But if I'm being listened to, even if they're not using my ideas, but they're interested in them, Mm -hmm. like that's one of the things that you might get out of it. I love that. In fact, I was just helping someone navigate a brainstorm in the coming weeks. And so many of the brainstorm tactics that work really brilliantly come from improv. Mm -hmm. You know, there's that phase where no idea is a bad idea. There's no buts. There's no no's. It's all and yes. And, and then there, you know, there comes a point where you call it and you gravitate. What are we most excited about out of this list of things we've just come up with, which is all improv stuff. Mm -hmm. So one last question and then we're going to wrap. I am a huge moth fan. Mm. They do amazing storytelling work too. If you had to say the one thing that makes the moth, the moth Mm. from a storytelling standpoint, what would you say? Like what's their active ingredient that makes them so good? That platform so good. Yeah. I think the moth has really harnessed the old fashioned art of just everybody getting together by the campfire and telling good stories Mm -hmm. in a really interesting and amazingly relatable and packageable way. And they're not the only one doing it. There are other platforms, other shows all over the place that are putting on and creating communities of storytellers. What The Moth has also done really well as a brand and as a company is that like TED or other companies like that, we have trained our audience really well, which is that people don't come to a moth show with no preparation whatsoever. I think the audience expects the stories to be real, to be concise, tight, to mm-hmm. be about a change, you know, something that was important enough to talk about and to be something that is really relatable to anybody. So even though it's going to be a really specific experience from your life, mm-hmm. it's something that I can hear your incredible story and somehow some way I can be like, I know what it's like to be afraid. I know it's like to lose someone. I know it's like to fall in love or whatever that emotional resonant core is. Yep. Because when you go to a moth show, you're going to get this realm of the human experience. On the most recent moth stage, I hosted the Berkeley Moth in Berkeley, California last week. The theme was chemistry. And so you're going to expect in a show like that to hear a range of stories. You know, the theme always unifies these stories. So you heard stories about the chemistry of, you know, between two people, like how they fell in love chemistry. You had a high school science teacher telling a story, you know, like a classroom story. You had somebody talking about um, sort of their brain chemistry, you know, like basically their struggles with depression or mental illness. Like you have something where the word Mm -hmm. is going to connect us. But when you really take a step back and you look at like, what are we talking about? You're just talking about life. Yes. And you access those big universals through the very hyper-specific. Yeah. Oh, I love that. What a great topic, Mm -hmm. chemistry. Yeah. I'm always like, whenever Ted releases their categories, I'm always like, God, that's so good and it's so simple. (laughs) Yeah. How did I not think of that? Yeah. That's amazing. So just to close, if you've got, somebody's driving their car, listening to this podcast, and they want to get sharper, they want to become more compelling in front of the room, they want to feel more comfortable in their skin, what's a piece of advice that they could use today? Without even having to take a class, I would say to bring some level of play into your life. Improv is the drug of choice for me in a lot of ways. But <laughs> you are I think a brave soul. play is a great way of doing that. Mm-hmm. So I talked earlier, I'll reincorporate something I talked about before, this idea of the story spine, which is this framework for telling any story, right? Once upon a time and every day until one day, et cetera, et cetera. Love it. 
I use that every day of my life. When my kids were little, it was my bedtime stories. Instead of reading, I mean, we did read books, but I would also sit there in bed and I would just say, once upon a time, and my daughter would say, there was a frog. Like, yeah. And I would maybe elaborate on that. Your kids are so lucky. Until, you know, every day. I know, right? (laughs) But the thing is, anybody could do that. Yeah. One of my, I know you're kind of close, but an example of that is that I was teaching a class at a university working with grad students developing their own student films and when you're creating something fictional it's a little different than creating something non-fictional where where you know what's actually happening Mm -hmm. and he had a classic sort of third act story problem he had a, a situation the story was about his name was Techa and it was a fantasy animated film about a nobleman in sort of the dawn of the age of flight where he's in a hot air balloon, basically takes off into the skies above his little town. And as soon as he kind of clears the cloud line, a UFO comes down with an alien in a little kind of single-seater UFO, like about (laughs) as wide as the hot air balloon. And so the scene is basically played out between this alien and the UFO and the nobleman in the basket. And they have this kind of little contest of like, oh, well, what, what do you got there? And it kind of flies around his basket. And the nobleman takes offense and he basically challenges the alien to a duel oh, by shit. throwing his glove and <laughs> slapping him across the face, cutting the line of his hot air balloon and swinging over to have a sword fight with the alien. Right? Oh, my God. So they're sword fighting, basically like the alien and the guy. And it kind of escalates and escalates. And they get into trouble where now because he's cut the ropes of his own hot air balloon, the balloon is not working anymore and the UFO is not working anymore. And this is where Tay got into trouble. He's like, so what do you think should happen? And we brainstormed in the class, like what do you think should do? I don't know. So I'm like, let's think about this. So I come home that night and my son's seven years old at the time and I tell him this as a bedtime story and he just filled in the end of the story. In his child's mind, he was like, well, the UFO's broken? I go, yeah. He goes, and the hot air balloon's broken? He goes, well, they have to work together. And I go, how? He goes, well, they tie the strings of the hot air balloon to the UFO and they fly away together. I'm like, yes, of course, yeah. (laughs) So I come back to class and I'm so excited. I'm like, my kid just fixed your story. And so what did he say? Was he like, He's got his first credit in a movie. No It's a great little film. Yeah, it's on Vimeo. Okay, so that moment though, because that moment of panic where you've painted yourself into a corner, whether it's storytelling or any other number of things, the way you solved it was by beginner's mind, playful mind. Playful mind. There's no stakes. Yeah. The lowest stakes possible. And then that's where the idea comes through. It's from this relaxed, playful seven-year-old mindset. So you asked what's something that they could do right now. Something you can do right now is here's a game you can play with anybody on a date, at dinner, whatever, and just play a game that I call That Reminds Me of the Time, where you'd basically just start with anything. And this is not a storytelling game. This is like a flushing out the contents of your consciousness. So you want to play with me really quick? 100%, All right. So Oh, my God, I'm kind of nervous. Yeah. So all you got to basically do is... We're going to start with a word of some kind, okay. and then I'm going to, or whoever has it first is going to say, okay, that reminds me of the time, something, something. Like real, like a real okay. thing it reminds you of. Okay. And then I'm going to riff off of that and say, okay, that reminds me of, and I'll say what it reminds me of. Okay. The only things you can't do is you can't say that reminds me, the same thing happened to me. Because you've got to kind of pass the ball. you got to give me something else. you got to move the else. ball forward, yeah. So even if it's like the same thing happened to me, but say like, but I was in Ecuador. Something where you've got to have some 
variants yes. to give me somewhere to go with that. And if you get completely stuck, you could say, okay, that doesn't actually remind me of anything, but that other thing reminded me. You can pull a lateral. Okay. You can kind of like switch to something because you're going to have be thought of something. Okay. Should we just play for 30 oh, seconds? Yes. All right. Absolutely. Okay, so give me a word. Any skateboard. Word. Skateboard. Okay, skateboard reminds me of the time that I tried to learn to roller skate in my parents' driveway, but we never had one of those like black top driveways. It was like, <laughs> and it was really hard. Okay. Okay, that reminds me of when the movie Xanadu came out. Yeah. My favorite activity was to get with my friends, put on ribbons and bows and boas and yeah. scarves, yeah. and get on our roller skates and blast Xanadu and just skate in circles and pretend like we were the fairies. Right. And- Magical creatures. Okay. Blasting music reminds me of Michael Burns' bar mitzvah in <laughs> Miami, Florida. And he had a, this is 1985, and he had a boom box. The first kid I ever knew that had a boom box. And we walked down the middle of his cul-de-sac in Miami, blasting songs by the band Asia. Oh I think my it was, God. what was the big Asia song? The heat, heat of, of the moment. The yes, moment. yes. That's what that reminds me of. Okay, that reminds me of the band Asia Heat of the Moment video with the TVs stacked up. Yes. And the incredible technological feat it was to split those bodies up so that they filled in the oh, various yeah, TVs. Yeah, yeah. But th- that reminds me of when I was a kid. I was like a second or third grader and I was a latchkey kid. Yeah. And my mom didn't know. But every single day I came home, I made mayonnaise sandwiches, and I turned on MTV. Mm, okay. And that's what that reminds that me of. That reminds me of the first time I ever saw MTV was in a bar but we weren't at the bar like we went to the pizza place next to the bar and there was a video on and I remember like just my eyes wide open staring at this amazing crazy world that I'd heard <laughs> what was, about what was the video it was journey and it was someday love, love will, will find, find you. you and they're like stomping yes. around angry at each other yes yes yeah that reminds me of the first time I ever sang don't stop believing in my biggest voice yeah was at my own wedding. Mm. My best friend and I serenaded each other mm. and my husband, and we passed out lighters mm. to okay. people. Serenading someone reminds me of summer camp <laughs> and my first crush on someone, and I tried to kiss her, but it didn't work out. I was 10 years old. Go you. And I kind of did like a cheek kiss, and then there was like running away. But there wasn't like a tongue cheek kiss. No, no, there was no okay. tongue. This is okay. very pure. This was, ten- this was, that's very sweet. And yeah. That reminds me of my first kiss, which was on the dance floor freshman year of high school, and it was Lita Ford and Ozzy Osbourne, and there were smoke she- machines involved. Mm. It was very hot. Yeah, I, I was really blessed by that first kiss moment. Nice. All right, let's stop yeah. there. So, okay, so let's just recap of what we just did. Tell me. So we just flushed out memories of our lives, right? Yes. And any of those could be developed into a story, could be told, like, as we were doing this, we were taking that trip back, that yes. ticket to our own childhood. And the vividness of it, I could see it. Yeah. So if you're like, I don't have any ideas for stories, play that game for two minutes with someone and all of a sudden, you have a lot of things that you could develop, you could think about. So that's, that's something you could do right now. I love that. Corey, Play thank it on a you date. so yeah. much. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Awesome. Awesome.